We are continuing our study in the Gospel of John this morning, and this is now our third week in the 11th chapter, which records uh, the death and subsequent raising of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha were, were very close friends of Christ. Uh, from what we know about this family as we read the Gospels and kind of begin to piece some things together, it's quite clear that, that, that this family enjoyed a unique friendship with Jesus often opening their home to him. Uh, and Jesus clearly enjoyed his friendship with them as well. And as we come to this morning's text, verses 25 and 26 specifically, I think it's important just to pause for a minute, take a step back, and remember the surrounding context. It's a context of deep loss and deep love. Deep loss and deep love, deep loss in that Martha and Mary were grieving the death of their brother. And deep love in that Jesus, in ways that didn't make sense to them at the time, but Jesus was revealing the glory of God in their grief. Not by sparing Lazarus from death, but actually by raising him from the dead. Martha and Mary had sent word to the Lord informing that, that Lazarus was very, very sick. And in fact, he died before Jesus arrived. And when Jesus arrived, as we read, Martha went to meet him and shared her disappointment with him. One might even say, I don't think this is a stretch at all. One might even say that she shared her disappointment in him. That she really expected Jesus to be there and heal her brother. Lord, if you had been here, she said in verse 21, my brother would not have died. And we've talked about how we can relate with this on some level. Certainly we've all had similar thoughts of disappointment even disappointment with God or in God? Where were you, Lord? You came too late. Why did it take you so long? Where were you when my loved one died? Or where were you when my parents divorced? Or where were you when my marriage dissolved? Or where were you when my father left and my mother turned to alcohol? Or where were you when, when my child went astray? Where were you when I was passed over for promotion at work? Or worse yet, when I lost my job? Where were you? You see, it's one thing that Lazarus was sick, that was bad, but it's something else entirely that Lazarus was dead. Martha was expecting things to get better, not worse. And yet her statement in verse 21, this is important to see, 
her statement there in verse 21 is as much an expression of faith as it was of disappointment. She knows. She knows that Jesus is able and she believed he would have healed her brother if he'd been there. That's faith. And it's faith when she says to Christ in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Well, on the other side of things, along with Martha's deep loss, we see the Lord's deep love. He doesn't fault her in her grief, but seems okay, perfectly okay, with letting her express her faith in ways that allow her to work through her grief. He loves her. We read in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and the word loved there is the fullest, most complete love we know. It's the word agapeo or agape, which is the highest type of love, the greatest love imaginable, divine love. We assume at times that because God doesn't work as we want or expect Him to, He must not love. But in love, God sometimes chooses not to remove us from grief, but to minister to us in our grief. Revealing aspects of himself and his glory through suffering, not apart from it. And we, beholding his glory, even through tears of grief, come to believe in his goodness in new and much more meaningful ways. We behold and we believe, and this is love on God's part, meaning that the revealed glory of God is lovingly intended for the deepening of our faith. That's what Martha is about to experience, the, the deepening of her faith and the deep, deep love of Christ. And what Jesus says to her in verses 25 and 26 are words of love and life. And this is the fifth of the seven great I am sayings unique to the Gospel of John. Each one reveals a specific facet of the Lord, and each one calls us to faith in the Lord. Already, as we've journeyed through, God, through John already, we've, we've heard Jesus declare himself the bread of life. That was chapter 6, verse 35. And then he said, He is the light of the world. That is chapter 8, verse 12. He said, I am the door of the sheep, chapter 10, verse 7. I am the good shepherd of the sheep, chapter 10, verse 10. And here in chapter 11, he declares, read it, let's read it together. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The implication, I think, is something like this. Because Jesus is resurrection and life, we can know and experience the resurrected life today and forevermore. These two verses are the focus of our time this morning. And I want us to notice 
three things about this amazing claim. Three things that, we're, that are really going to take up the bulk of our time. I want us to consider the person of Christ. I want us to consider the power of Christ. And then I want us to consider the promise of Christ. The person, the power, and the promise. First, the person of Christ. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in so doing, he sets himself apart from every other person who's ever lived. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Not one among many, but the only one. Resurrection and life, in other words, they originate with Jesus and are only found in Jesus. So with these words, he is claiming to be God. He is distinguishing himself from all others. Only Jesus could make this claim. No mere mortal could say these words and be taken seriously. No one would even think to say them. It is an utterly unique statement, a remarkable claim, because Jesus Christ is utterly unique. He is like us, fully human, and unlike us at the same time. He is divine. He is the divine Son of God. He is from the beginning with God, existing eternally as God. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the full representation of God, the very image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. For in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God in human flesh and form, identifying with us in our humanity while also being entirely divine and therefore altogether distinct. So this statement is unprecedented and unparalleled. Jesus Christ alone is qualified to speak in this way and there is no one else like him. And then consider the power of Christ. These words are of remarkable power. This Jesus has power that belongs to nobody else. Power which is His alone. More to the point, with this statement, Jesus claims to have power over death. Humanly speaking, death is the greatest power we know. Death is the common thread between things like natural disasters and unexpected accidents and acts of war and school and church shootings and cancer wards, and other, every other instance that involves the loss of life in every city or town or village or settlement or community on the planet. There is, rather from the biggest metropolis to the smallest, most remote tribe, there is a cemetery 
or a graveyard or a burial ground or a ritual of some sort that reminds us all that death is inevitable. This week I read something interesting or heard something interesting about King Philip of Macedon. King Philip, some of you may know, the father of Alexander the Great, reportedly had a palace servant whose duty it was, listen, whose duty it was to approach the king each and every morning with these words, King Philip, remember that you must die. And so it is with each and every one of us. There is no escaping the reality of death. In fact, it may be said that only those who are prepared to die are truly prepared to live. Jim Elliott, the famed missionary to the Aka Indians who gave his life to reach that previously unreached people group in South America, once said, People have not learned to live who have first not learned to die. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement of the 18th century. And he was once asked why the Methodist movement was so successful, successful, to which Wesley famously replied, Our people die well. And by this he meant that they had put their faith in Christ, which settled the matter of their death, and they were therefore free to serve people with nothing to lose, but everything to gain. Well, we too must learn how to die well. And for death is an ever-present reality for all of us. It comes to us all and plays no favorites, rich and poor, male and female, young and old. No one can say to death, don't come my way. No one can say, stay away from me. No one can command it to wait, much less to, to flee. The shadow of death looms over each life from the moment we are born. We are destined to die. But Jesus Christ has power over death. Do you hear me, church? He himself has conquered death. He died and rose from the dead and thus removed the sting of death. The sting of death is sin, we're told. But Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin and bore our sins and died for sins once for all. He, the righteous, died for you, the unrighteous, Jesus, therefore, has the power to remove the sentence of death and even the fear of it. Jesus has power to safely lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. He says in Revelation 1.17 that He holds the keys of death, meaning that He alone has authority to unlock this dreadful prison and set the captives free. Do you hear me, church? So we've considered the person of Christ and the power of Christ. And third, look at the promise of Christ. Really, there are two promises here. 
two promises in one, something like two sides of the same coin. Verse 25 is the first promise. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Here he speaks about physical death and life beyond the grave. Again, all who live will die physically unless the Lord returns first. But Jesus is saying that faith in him assures that even though you die, you will live. In other words, your death physically will not be the end, but merely a new beginning, a passing from the temporal to the eternal. Verse 26 is the second promise, or the second side of this promise, where the Lord confronts the reality of spiritual death. He says, everyone who lives right now, today, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not that you will never die physically. Obviously, that's not what he means. He's saying that faith in Christ assures you assures you will never die spiritually in the spiritual sense. Death, for those who believe, is not the final state. Apart from faith in Christ, we are dead spiritually. Dead in sin because the wages of sin is death. Death is the consequence of our sinful rebellion against God as well as the condition. It's the consequence as well as the condition of our sin nature apart from God. It is our human condition. It is sin's curse upon our race, and there is nothing we can do to reverse the curse. But the Bible teaches that God has done what we cannot do and that in His death on the cross, Christ accepted the full consequence of our curse and in His resurrection from the dead, He secured life for all who believe. For the believer, for the believer then, death is like sleep. It's like the passing of one day to the next. And in fact, that's what, what Jesus says here about Lazarus. He said in verse 11 that Lazarus had fallen asleep. Well, the disciples took him literally, but Jesus was speaking about Lazarus' death. And so, for believers in Christ, death is like, it's like going to sleep at the end of one day, only to wake the following morning refreshed and renewed. Those who believe in Christ are already alive with Christ. Passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, you might just make note of them. Or Colossians 2, 12 through 13 declare, we are already raised in the spiritual sense. We are already made alive together with Christ. We've already experienced a spiritual resurrection. And later, when Jesus returns, we will be raised in the physical, bodily sense as well. Our bodies will be resurrected in glory as passages like 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4 so gloriously affirm. 
So what we have here is a promise of future resurrection and life. Verse 25, and a promise of resurrection and life even now. Verse 26, both of which are realized through faith in him who is resurrection and life. In Jesus Christ, we have a remarkable person with remarkable power who makes this remarkable promise of victory over death and life everlasting. Hallelujah. And this promise of resurrection and life brings hope. Makes all the difference on how we view life and how we walk through life and how we live life. In Christ we have hope that despair and death are not in vain, that whatever losses we experience along the way are not for naught. That's what Martha needed to know. And I think, I think we see some of this when she says to Jesus, even now I know, Lord, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What's she saying there? I think she's saying, she's asking the Lord to make it better. She's lost her brother. She's in deep grief. But Lord, even now I know you can make it better. You can do something good from this grief. And isn't it interesting that that's what people long for when they experience the loss of a loved one or really a loss of, of any kind? People want to know that their loved one's death is not in vain. Particularly if that death came unexpectedly as Lazarus's did or, or even unjustly. And so people work to reform laws, right? Or to further medical research or to somehow change social conditions that led to the death of their loved one. They want the apparent injustice to somehow lead to greater justice. They want their loss to somehow lead to gain. They, they need to believe that the death of their loved one is not for naught, but in some way lead to new life. And the Christian view of resurrection assures us of just that. Resurrection is hope in a future when God will make all things new, where every wrong, every wrong will be righted, and all our grief, all of it, will give way to glory. And yet the Christian view goes even further, for the promise of resurrection affects not only our future, but also our present, and that we can know resurrection life right now. So when, when Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again, he wasn't talking about the future only. That's what Martha thinks. She's thinking long term. She says, yes, Lord, I know. I know someday, someday he will. 
She's thinking about this future final resurrection. But Jesus is bringing, listen, the future into her present. The future reality of resurrection into her present circumstance. Martha, you're thinking of some future resurrection, but I am the resurrection, the very embodiment of new life with God, and I am with you right now. So our Christian, uh, our Christian hope, listen, our Christian hope is not just about what will be, but what is. Not just about what will be, but what is. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's speaking in the present tense. Not I was resurrection and life, or someday I will be resurrection and life, but I am the resurrection and the life. Always, at all times, in all places, in every circumstance and situations. Listen, where, wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection power and promise. Did you hear that? Wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection power and promise. Wherever Jesus is present, there is life with God. And the Bible calls this our living hope. Saying that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope speaks of new life. It's the promise of new birth. Birth itself is full of hope. And so, so with the birth of each of my five kids, there was this sense of unbelievable hope as I held them and, and beheld them. Not just hope in who they may become someday by God's grace, but, but hope in who they were right then and there. Hope makes all the difference in our today as well as our tomorrow. Meaning that you can face whatever is facing you with living hope. In fact, the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God wants you to know this hope and live in it and trust in the fullness of it each and every day. To know it, to live in it, and to trust in the fullness of it each and every day. The Bible, when we talk about hope, I think, I think we need to realize that the Bible doesn't think of hope as we sometimes do. 
Sometimes when we speak of hope, we think more or we speak more like wishful thinking. I hope I pass this test. I hope I get that job. But, but Christian hope is not wishful in that way. It's certain. It serves as an anchor for the soul. And it keeps us from going adrift. When all the waves are, when we're in this tumultuous sea, and it seems that things are crumbling around us, and the waves are crashing over us, it's that anchor that keeps us steady. Jesus will illustrate this by raising Lazarus from the dead. He's going to illustrate what he's saying now by raising Lazarus from the dead. We're going to consider that next week. But this raising of Lazarus is in many ways, it's like a visual aid. It's a sign. It's, a, it's something that Jesus is using to demonstrate the hope of resurrection life. And he doesn't want Martha or Mary. He doesn't want us to miss it. And what's the purpose behind it all? Well, the purpose, we're told, is so that you may believe. So that you all may believe. But also so that you may believe. So there's a sense of you allness, and there's a sense of individuality, so that you may believe. Jesus says this is why this is happening, and he tells his disciples that in verse 15, so that you may believe. And then he will pray. He will pray those words in verse 42 when he says to the Father, he says, so this, is, this is happening so that they may believe. And this is what he says. That's the question he asks to Martha even here in verse 26. Do you believe this? It's really the question he asks us all. Not, not a general or generic belief. He's not after general, subjective, impersonal, um, arm's length, at a distance faith. That's not what he's after. No, no, the question, his question is much more specific. It's, do you believe this? Do you believe not just in the doctrine of resurrection, Martha, but do you believe in Him who, who is resurrection? Not just in life after death, but in Him who is life and has overcome death. Do you believe what I've told you? Do you trust in me, Martha, and do you entrust yourself to me? And her, her reply, likewise, is not just a general statement of faith, but it's a specific declaration of Christ-centered faith. That's key. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you, that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who's coming into the world. Martha, I'm sure, didn't know everything about Jesus, and I doubt she knew even all that he meant here. 
But she affirmed what she did know, that indeed Jesus was the long-expected Messiah, the divine Savior and Son of God, who had come into the world, into her world, one of death and despair, to bring life and hope to all who believe. Christian belief centers around the person of Christ and it calls for personal response to Christ. And we need to see that that this promise does not apply to every person, but only to those persons who believe in Him. In Him. Whoever believes in me, he says. And then he says, everyone who lives and believes in me, in me. Literally, into me. That's it. Into me. Meaning that Christian faith actually brings us into a living connection with Christ. And all persons, all persons, everyone who entrusts themselves to him, His Lordship, to His care, whoever they are, receive His promise of resurrection and His power over death because they are united to the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so as we close, what does it mean that Jesus is the resurrection and life? What does it mean? It means that God is alive and present. Some of us this morning, maybe that's the word for you. God is alive and present. That life is precious. That the reality of resurrection is among us and available to us. It means we can walk through life, even the trials of life, even death with hope and without fear because we are in Christ who loves us and leads us and never leaves us. Yes, to be sure, because Jesus is resurrection and life, we can know, we can, we can know and experience the resurrected life today and forevermore. Amen. God, we thank you for our time this morning. And we do indeed ask that you would bring life to us. That you would free us to enjoy this this promise. That we would live and experience this power. And mostly that we would embrace and admire and honor this person the person of Jesus Christ who died for sin, rose from the dead, and imparts life today and forevermore to all who believe. Deepen our faith, we ask, for our good, For your great glory, amen.